0: To get into 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 16, and I just want to talk about or remind you that again, in this section, we're going to be dealing with the letter that the Corinthians had written to Paul. And remember, friends, the letter that the Corinthians had written to Paul wasn't one in which they were really seeking for answers. It was one that was more antagonistic. It was one they were claiming that they knew better than Paul. Okay, So it's an antagonistic letter. So that's what we're going to be dealing with again. Paul's going to be dealing with the issue of divorce. So let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do come before you and we're so grateful that we can learn your word in freedom and we can proclaim your word boldly. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this section of scripture so that we could apply it to our lives so that we would see how important the marriage covenant is Uh, But also, Lord, that you would keep us from legalism and putting demands on people that your word does not. But also, Lord, that we would interpret it accurately and that we would not bring applications that are not found from the meaning itself. So, Lord, we ask that you would open your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's get started right away. I'm going to show you the flow of 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 40 And I want to remind you of where we left off last time in verse 7. And I think it's important because right away, the section that we're going to be coming into builds off of verse 7, where Paul said, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. Of course, he was single. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Now, remember, last week we talked about the implication of that verse is there's a gift for celibacy, but there's also, by implication, a gift for marriage. And I'll be showing from Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, that Jesus really taught the same thing. In fact, more than likely, Paul derived the teaching from that. So with that now, let me just show you the flow. When we get into verses seven or chapter seven and verses eight through nine, Paul's going to be dealing with the unmarried. Now technically, they're not just unmarried, they are widowers and widows. okay? So they were previously married, but now their spouse is dead but they don't have the celibacy gift, okay? And so Paul is building off of verse 7 saying, well, he wishes that each one would have that gift, but he realizes not everybody has the gift of celibacy. Not everybody can remain faithful, okay, um, being single. And so then from there, he deals in verses 10 through 11, he says that there should be no divorce for married believers. And then in verses 12 through 16, there's no divorce for mixed marriages. That is where one spouse is a believer and the other one is an unbeliever. And then when we get into verses 17 through 24, we see this is the controlling principle in the whole section. You're going to see this principle come time and time again. The, the idea is stay as one as you were when you were called. Okay. In other words, if you were married, stay married when you became a believer. If you're single, remain single if you can Okay. when you became a believer. If you burn with passion, then you're to marry. We're going to see that in the first verses. But that's the controlling thought here in principle stay as you were when you were called into christ and then in verses 25 through 40 it's concerning virgins that is people who have never been married so that's the flow that we're dealing with in the rest of chapter 7 so with that let's get started in verses 8 through 9 paul says but i say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as i but if they do not have self-control let them marry For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The term unmarried here is probably rather unfortunate because the term agamas is probably better rendered widower. Okay, And and I I think we can be about 95% sure that's how it should be understood. So what Paul is doing is he's talking about widowers and widows. Of course, the widower would be the male who had lost his spouse, and the widow would be the woman who lost her spouse. So the idea is these are people who were at one time married, they had had the privileges of the marriage union and now they don't. And so what he's saying is remain as you are unless you can't because of your lack of self-control. So the implication though here is this. I think it's interesting. Verses 1 through 16 then, really if you think about it, Paul is dealing with those previously married or currently married whereas verses 25 through 38 then are dealing with those who have never been married. Okay, And then in, of course in the middle would you would have the controlling principle from verses 17 through 24, stay as you are when you were called. Okay. Now, the term that we have to deal with here a little bit is burn with passion. It comes from pura'o. Pur is the noun for fire. So pura'o, you can see the relationship with the verb. Pura'o means more than likely to burn with lust. It's just being used as a metaphor here. The debate is, does burn here, because remember, let me just point this out, with passion is in italics. That's not original to the Greek text, but it's put in your New American Standard, for instance, so that it makes more sense when you read it. But literally, it's better to marry than to burn. And so, of course, some people think that the burning is a reference to judgment. The problem is, is judgment isn't used in the immediate context. And what is used in the immediate context is the inability to control one's passions, And so more than likely, that's how it's being used here. I think we can be reasonably safe in that. Okay, so burn with passion. So again, if you're a widower or a widow and you can't control yourself, it's better to marry than to burn with this passion and then fall into temptation and therefore sin. That's what Paul is teaching. Now we move into verses 10 through 11. Paul continues, he says, "...but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried." or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Notice this phrase, not I, but the Lord. I remember in seminary some years ago, whenever I was, how many years? Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. It seems time goes by so fast. But I remember a person actually raising their hand and saying, well, I think this this distinguishes the teaching that comes from God himself. And that of the apostle. And so they were trying to make an artificial distinction between the words of Paul and the words of Christ. Okay? That is not the category that's being built here. What Paul is simply saying is that he actually has the words from Jesus' earthly ministry that he's drawing from. Okay? But that does not mean that when Paul teaches something, even if it 's his opinion that that is not a word from God, because he, as an apostle, is god 's personal spokesman, so don 't fall into that error, and i 'll point this out again in the next verses, okay so again, Paul is recalling the words of christ 's teaching during his earthly ministry more than likely from matthew nineteen three through eleven and i 'll show you why I believe it 's that section so let 's actually turn to that if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter nineteen. And I'm going to show you some interesting things here as Jesus reestablishes marriage. And this section regarding marriage starts in verse 3 where you had some Pharisees that came to Jesus and they were testing him, it says, and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And of course, when you see for any reason at all, that tips you off. There's an issue going on here. Well, what you're going to find out is that there was two camps... Of Pharisees that were arguing. There was a, a school of rabbis or from a rabbi named Shammai. He actually died in 10 BC. He was very old. In fact, I think he was about 110 years old. And he dies, I'm sorry, not in 10 BC, but 10 AD. And so probably 20 years prior to Christ's earthly ministry. But his disciples carried on. Well, then you had another rabbi who died about 30 AD. His name was Hillel. Well, Hillel His followers were interpreting Deuteronomy 24, which I'm going to show you here. They were interpreting it in such a way that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. He didn't like the food she made. He thought the the oatmeal was too lumpy, okay? And so that's what the issue is. And so the Pharisees want Jesus to weigh in on this issue. So let me just show you the text, though, that these two groups of Pharisees were wrangling with. It came from Deuteronomy 24.1, where Moses had written, he says, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes a certificate of divorce. Well, the point in this whole passage is what does it mean to have indecency in her? Okay, is it because she makes bad oatmeal or is it being sexually unfaithful? Now, of course, Shammai, the followers from that school said, well, the indecency was only sexually um, being unfaithful. Okay? Okay, Well, Hillel, that group was saying, well, the indecency, again, could be as minor as a spoiled dish, a mole. They actually write this, by the way, a mole, or that some other woman was fairer to the eyes, as they put it. Okay? Well, what's really interesting here is Jesus doesn't play like a lot of people in our culture do today. Well, each group has their own truth, right? Or, you know, you can see kind of each point. No, Jesus sides in on this issue. One is right and one is wrong. The Shammai group is right, he says. Let me show you now. Jesus, the reason why I entitled it this way, he explicates the seventh commandment. What he's going to show here is that if you divorce your wife for the reasons that the group of Hallel is claiming, you're violating the seventh commandment. And that would have been devastating, especially to the Pharisees. Why? They pride themselves on keeping the law. And he's saying, no, 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 don't. You can't claim that you're keeping the law if you're thinking and acting that way. So in verses 4 through 9, Jesus answers them. He says, and he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning... Now, here we have a quote here from uh, Genesis one hundred twenty seven, He made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, let me stop there. That quote here is from Genesis 2.24. Now, see this term, joined? A very interesting term in the Septuagint. Remember, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, it's used in Isaiah 41 7 for soldering. So, literally, the joining that's being pictured here is a very tight, indivisible unity that, that's being created. Okay, and it's being created by God. And so, obviously, that would indicate that these two are never to be separated again. Now, here we have a purpose statement, or the result clause is so they are no longer two, right? But one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together let no man separate. Now that term separate, corizo, that is what's being used in 1 Corinthians 7.10 where Paul's saying, do not separate you wives from your husbands and likewise uh, would be husbands from their wives. And so there I think we have this correlation that that's exactly what Paul has in mind. He has this passage of Jesus' teaching in mind. So again, man is not to separate what God has, if you will, welded or soldered together and Jesus continues, to, he says, they said to him, and these are the Pharisees replying, he says, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, that comes from Deuteronomy 24, one, that we just said, or we just looked at. And he said to them, Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, And marries another woman, commits adultery. Notice the term permitted. The idea is, and look at the idea, it's Moses permitting. Don't get the idea that Moses' words are different again than God's words. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, well, God from the beginning wants you to keep your marriage. But Moses is saying something different. No, Moses' words are God's words. What Jesus' point is, it's because of the hardness of sinful man and, and woman that God actually allows people to be divorced, okay? And it's a permission. By the way, the term permitted actually has the connotation of suffering. It's the idea that, okay, I'll let you do it. But uh, it has sort of that meaning behind it as well. The idea that, well, it's, it's not ideal, but it's permitted. Um, the term whoever, I just want to point out one thing. Jesus is really talking here as if he was in the what's called the casuistic law from the Old Testament, where you have an if-this-then-that situation, and he's basically reiterating the seventh commandment. He says, whoever, so if you're a whoever that divorces his wife except for the one thing that is immorality, and that would be sexual immorality, and marries another, you're breaking the seventh commandment. You're committing adultery, okay? And so the Pharisees from the Hillel camp, they would be breaking that commandment by teaching what they're teaching, okay? But this is where Paul is deriving his teaching from, now, the other thing, I want to continue this a little bit because notice Jesus and Paul, they end up teaching the same thing on the gifts. Matthew nineteen ten through 11, the disciples said to Jesus, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Now, listen to what Jesus says. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. Okay, so Jesus reiterating the principle that some are gifted towards celibacy And the implication would be that some aren't. And that's exactly what we saw Paul teach last week in verse 7. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God. So again, Jesus and Paul are teaching the same thing. And Paul is deriving his teaching from Jesus. Now, let's move on. We're going to see Paul instructs these Christians in mixed marriages. In verses 12 through 14, Paul continues. He says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy." This passage has raised a lot of eyebrows because it seems to be, at least at the outset, implying that one can be saved merely through their marriage relationship. And that's not what's being stated here. We'll address that. The first thing I want to deal with, though, is this, again, the section in red, I say not the Lord. It's very important, again, that we realize Paul's words are God's words. Paul is simply stating here that he does not have a specific teaching from Jesus' earthly ministry in mind now proof of that we see in first corinthians 7 25 or listen to what paul says he says now concerning virgins i have no command of the lord but i give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the lord is trustworthy what does he mean by the mercy of the lord is trustworthy well he means he received his apostolic office purely and strictly through the mercy of god and therefore his opinion is to be trusted and in fact heeded because he's an apostle Okay, so again, don't make the the wrong assumption that Paul is saying, Well, this is just my opinion, this is not a word from God. He's just simply pointing out that this is not from Jesus' earthly teaching, any of those words that were found there. Okay? Now, the implication here again is that no one can claim that this is just Paul's opinion and therefore not binding. Okay, and I've seen that time and time again. I saw it once at Northwestern College and I remember this student, he had raised this objection, and I never forgot how the professor he almost jumped down his throat and the reason why the professor was doing that is he wanted to make sure this guy understood that no what paul says is the very word of god it's very important that we can't say well that's just paul's opinion i may disregard that people will in fact use that so if you have a bible study in first corinthians make sure you get that right because you may have people that'll try to use that as a loophole and say well that's only paul that's not that's not god okay people will try to do that Now, there's another issue I want to address in this section here, and it's the idea of sanctified and holy. Of course, those terms are usually, they have to do with salvation. Sanctified, I've talked probably ad nauseum about that term, but sanctified is used really in two ways in the New Testament. It has to do with the process by which you and I are conformed more to the image of God's Son after conversion. It's also used in the sense that we are set apart before the foundation of the world to be found holy and blameless in christ it's the idea of being set apart for something holy and so it has those two ideas attached to it and so it's often used synonymously with salvation holy obviously has to do with salvation as well now before we get into this let me just reiterate this point here four notice it says four that's an explanatory four it says four and the reason why that's there by the way is it's explaining why should a believer not leave his spouse well it's for this reason for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her right and the children are holy that's that's why okay so in what way are they sanctified and holy that's the debate well sanctified and holy friends again they're normally associated with salvation but they cannot mean that here now the answer i think we actually have to this little dilemma is is found in verse 16, where Paul says, how do you know, wife, whether or not you will save your husband? In other words, don't leave your husband. Why? Because you don't know if by you being a Christian and exposing him to the gospel, he may repent and believe. And so notice, very importantly, in verse 16, will save. It's a a future tense of sozo. Okay? Implying that the salvation that would be implied here with sanctified and holy hasn't yet occurred in the present. It's some, in other words, it's the idea that the unbelieving spouse is being set apart for the purpose that they may hear the gospel and perhaps they may believe, of course, by God's mercy. Okay, it's in that sense it's being used. Is that clear? So I think verse 16 clears it up that, no, they're not saved just through the marriage union uh, and nor, near, neither are the children, but yet they're exposed to the gospel and therefore they may believe. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Oh, let me give you this possible... Or I think it's actually more of a probable reconstruction of what the situation was going on in Corinth. Follow the logic here. Remember 1 Corinthians seven one. remember we had the Perry day, now concerning the things about which you wrote. Okay, So Paul was responding to the, their letter. And then remember we said that he more than likely is quoting their slogan, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The Corinthians were teaching that because they were so spiritual and they wanted to act as if they were like the angels above, it would be good to withdraw from the normal sexual union of a man and his wife so that they would start acting like who they truly were. That is completely spiritual. Okay? And they thought it was a spiritual thing to uh, withdraw from the sexual union. So more than likely, the Corinthians were saying this, it is good to abstain from intercourse to be more spiritual. Okay. And then they would say sexual relations with an unbeliever will defile the believer. That's what they were concerned about. Okay. Now, this is Paul's response. Paul corrected them by teaching no, the believer is not defiled by the unbelieving spouse, rather the unbeliever exposed to the gospel and therefore salvation might come through the believer. So the Corinthians are saying the unbeliever will defile the believer. Paul says no. No, no, no. The believer may end up Leading the unbeliever into salvation, so he turns. I'll come. Can you? I'm sorry. I'll, well, you know what? You're new here for the last few months. So why don't you do, go ahead? No, let's just make this. Let's make a Keith exception because we haven't seen you for a while. So, you may forget too. So, maybe. Well, I was just Corinth. When you go there,
1: there's a you know big temple on top of the hill, and every day you have a thousand. Of temple prostitutes come into the city
2: mm.
1: and you had a concentrate of sailors and stuff coming through that so the whole city's foundation the economic foundation of the temple was built on relations between uh the temple prostitutes wow. and those who came mm. and what he's saying here in addition to to it's not sexual relations with an unbeliever that actually defiles you with sexual relations outside of marriage. Yeah. So also, even among the heathen or among the pagans he's upholding the value of marriage itself uh-huh. and if you're married stay married because yeah. it's in this marriage context even within the pagan uh, the pagan city that was to be honored and it's the adulterous context with these temple prostitutes that were associated with the idolatry, and you see that later that hmm. they're linked. So idolatry and adultery go together. We're standing for wow. marriage, whether it's pagan or unpagan, because marriage is a good thing.
3: Wow,
0: that's a great point. And you were actually there; you saw these things. So wow, yeah, yeah, great point. I, 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 well said. Thank you. All right. Well, I'll just continue on there then. And so that—that's the issue, though I think that's at hand. Now let me move on to verses uh, 15 through 16. And now. Friends, this is a very difficult section to interpret simply because it's difficult to get from the Greek to the English and say it well, okay? But we're gonna, I think we're going to be able to have a translation that works here. But let me just start off by talking about Paul's principle that it's stay as you were called. Paul continues, he says, "'Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife?' whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, now, the first thing I want to point out here is we have another exception clause. So we're tipped off, and in the Greek it's this a-day. This day is what's called post-positive, so that's thrown forward. So it's literally but-if, or probably better rendered yet, if. And so that tips us off. We have an exception. Okay, Paul's giving us an exception here. And the exception, of course, is if, the unbeliever leaves. Now, the question though is what does it mean to be under bondage? Okay? This is the I think the $64,000 question in this passage. If we get this right, I think we'll understand what Paul is saying. The question is does when it says not under bondage, does that mean that the believer is now free from the marriage itself? Okay? And I don't think that that's what Paul is saying. Now, one clue that we have is the term for bondage, it's actually a verb here, is dulao? Dulao comes from, everyone's heard of doulas perhaps, slave. Okay, well this will be the verbal form of that. Well what's interesting is elsewhere in the New Testament, the binding in a marriage is not that term, it's deo. So for instance you'll see that in 1 Corinthians 7.39. In fact we'll look at that passage. The binding between a man and a woman in marriage is different than the one found here. It's deo not lao. okay? Also, in Romans 7, 2, Paul alludes to marriage as an analogy, and he says that a woman is bound to her husband as long as, I think it's he lives, or I think it's as long as he lives, okay? Well, the idea there is, again, deo, they're bound. So the point is, this bondage, more than likely, isn't the bondage in marriage, but rather it's being bound to the words that Paul has spoken thus far. Namely, that you cannot abstain from the normal sexual relations between a man and a woman marriage. The point is, you don't have to chase this unbeliever down to maintain the marriage. But Paul is not saying that you're free from the marriage. Okay? So let me, let me put up a little bit more of this slide. It'll make sense. So, the not under bondage says this. If the unbeliever leaves, the believer is released from the burden of maintaining the marriage. But this does not imply divorce or remarriage is acceptable. Now, how do we know that? Well, because elsewhere, look at, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7.39, look at what Paul teaches. He says, A wife is bound, and again, that would be deo, not dulao, right? A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Of course, it has to be a believer, is the idea. Okay, so... The idea then, and by the way, we see the same thing in Romans 7 too, is that this bondage is the bondage of what Paul had reiterated up to this point, that in fact you have to maintain the marriage. Well, now the person is free, but that doesn't mean that the marriage is absolved. Okay? And the reason why this is important to get this down is a lot of people have used this passage to get out of marriages, and they've used it unwisely. Now let me just show you, the next problem that we have in this passage... Oh, by the way, Paul's principle, again, is stay as you were called. If you're married, stay married. If you're unmarried, stay unmarried when you were called, if you can do that, if you don't burn with passion. But that's the general principle, okay? But now let me just show you the issue, though, I think that we have here again. Notice it says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But what does it mean that God has called us to peace? Okay, is he saying that we have peace? In other words, we're set free from our unbelieving spouse. And so, in that way, we have peace now. I don't have to worry about that unbelieving nag or uh, the unbeliever who's just been a nag and a thorn in my side. I don't think that that's how Paul is using peace here. Now, the re- the, what tips us off is this. Notice the questions for how do you know a oh wife whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Notice, those questions don't make any sense if what it means to be called unto peace is separation from the unbeliever. Do you see what I'm saying? Those questions don't make any sense then. So what scholars have been wrestling with is, well, how do we understand this passage? So let me just show you how I think we can make sense of it. First of all, we have what's called an adversative but. Okay? That sounds kind of mean, actually. But it just means that Paul is saying yes, here's a principle, but I'm going to disagree with it to a certain extent. I'm going to give you something better. I think that's what he's saying here. So the adversative is indicating the preferred method of God, okay? So even though he says you don't have to chase the unbeliever, but God also is calling us to peace. That would be the idea. So God is keeping the believer and unbeliever together in the confines of marriage in peace. Now, here is what I think is key here to understand this passage. Paul is probably deriving this idea from a Hebraism where the Hebrews would bestow peace upon those who are undeserving, namely the Gentiles. And so it was this idea that, yes, they don't deserve it, but we want to have peace with all men. In fact, Paul says something very similar in Romans twelve eighteen, where he, we want to live, if, if, you know, if, if it's up to us, we can live peacefully with all men. That would be the principle. So the point is, even with these unbelievers, God is asking us to live in the bonds of peace. In other words, we don't divorce, we don't rock the boat. That's more than likely what Paul is saying here. So let me give you my translation. I think this is how it would be better translated. The beginning is fine. It says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, period. And then you have this day, which would be but... God has called us to peace and, of course, the ideal to be strived for rather than the exception. And then that would make sense then of the question, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Does that make sense? Because now what he's saying, well, God has called us to peace. We're going to be bestowing as believers this peace and this generosity upon the Gentiles that would be the unbeliever, and therefore we're in the bonds of peace. And so we're going to be striving for the ideal of keeping the marriage, even though we're not chasing them down to keep all the mandates within marriage. And then that would make sense of why the question is there for how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband, or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? Does that all make sense? I think that's what's going on here. So again, Paul is not saying you have peace because you're now divorced from your spouse, or you're free from the marriage. He is not saying that. He's simply saying you are bestowing peace upon those who are undeserving. That's how he's using it. And again, it's a Hebraism that I think perhaps they would have understood, but we have probably issues with today. Okay? So that's, I think, how the the passage should be best understood. So with that, oh, by the way, this peace again, oh, I just pointed that out earlier, I think. Yeah, it's Romans twelve eighteen. So again, in Romans twelve eighteen, does somebody have that? Could somebody read that for me? Larry, do you have, could you pop that in? Let's just read that and just think about what how Paul is using it there, I want to make sure I get it right
2: If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone
0: yeah, so if it is possible, live peaceably with everyone, and so the idea is whether they 're a believer or an unbeliever so the idea then is showing peace, shalom, to even the unbelieving, the undeserving, the unregenerate, and I think that 's exactly how Paul is using it here, so I think that again is a good clue that it may be a Hebraism that Paul is using. Okay, now let's turn to some application. I'm going to give you some points that Gordon Fee actually has in his commentary. I'm just taking it from him because he says it so well. First point is this. He says, Our situation is usually made more complex because our concerns are often the precise opposite of theirs, which caused this to be written in the first place. They wanted to dissolve marriages. We want to know whether marriage is per- remarriage is permitted. Uh, two things he says, therefore need to be pointed out. First, Paul does not speak to the question of remarriage. If that is one's concern, then it must be wrestled with in the much larger context of scripture. And the answer is not clear cut. In many cases, such marriages are clearly redemptive. Even if it is not the ideal situation, God still redeems our fallenness, whether it be individuals or broken marriages. On the other hand, there is nothing redemptive in remarriage that is simply an excuse for legalized lust, okay? So the one thing I want to point out here is oftentimes we are asking questions from the text that the text isn't addressing. That's one reason why I balked at the notion. For instance, people will often cite the 1 Corinthians passage that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and they'll cite that to people who are smoking, for instance, Okay? And they'll say, well, you shouldn't smoke. Why well, you're your temple of the Holy Spirit? But remember, the issue in Corinth was that people were sinning sexually. And so the idea was they were being united. They're supposed to be united to Christ, but instead they were being united to a harlot, okay? And so the issue was immorality, and they were breaking the bonds of their covenant with God. So now if that's the idea why Paul brings up the fact that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, can we extrapolate and say, well, therefore, you ought not to smoke? Well, should we not eat cheeseburgers? You know, that'll kill you too. You know, where do we draw the line? In other words, we don't want to... My, my, my concern is this, that we, we take texts that Paul has no... We're, we're asking questions that Paul isn't giving answers to and then we're becoming legalistic. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, can we say as Christians, I know those heaters, if you smoke them long enough, they'll kill you. From the general revelation, I see, my uncle did it he died when he was 40. I'm not going to do it. Can not we just say that? They may kill you. Don't don't smoke, <laughs> right? But I'm not going to tell you that the Lord has said this is a sin because, well, after all, we're the temples of the Holy. Spirit. I'm not going to go that far. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. And so the same thing applies here, friends. And I think we have to be careful to say, or ask the question of remarriage from this text because it's not necessarily addressing that. Okay. That's what Gordon Fee I think is rightly pointing out. Um, let me just say it this way, giving an analogy. If I'm flying, I have an altimeter. An altimeter will tell you good information about how high you are. And sometimes it will even give you implications or indications that you're going fast. In other words, if the altimeter's unwinding very rapidly, you're probably going fast. Okay, But if you're relying upon the altimeter to tell you how fast you're going, it wasn't designed for that. The Bible addresses certain issues. We, we, in fact, we deal this with this in the creation issue. Sometimes people are asking questions, of their altimeter, that is the text, that the text isn't designed to answer, okay? So we always want to be careful that we're not asking questions that the text itself is not designed to answer. And that's why we want to get the original meaning down before we get to the implications and applications, okay? It's a very, I think, important principle. Okay, now the second thing he points out is this. He says, second, the real point of the passage needs to be given a fair hearing, when a married man or woman hears and responds to the call of the gospel, but the married partner does not, at least at the same time, let the new believer consider the spouse sanctified, that is, also set apart for the gospel, and then let him or her so live that in due time they might save their spouses. That's the good news that this passage sets before us. Friends, if you're in a a marriage, maybe I, I don't know how many are here that have this situation, but perhaps you're listening over the Internet and you have a mixed marriage Remain as you are, and perhaps by your witnessing through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, your unbelieving spouse may be saved. That is, in fact, great news from this passage, and I think it's something we should certainly glean from it. So with that, um, we've got plenty of time, and we can take questions and comments. Larry's got something, and we've got Robert coming here.
2: Okay, i got a question for you, and it's uh, from a personal example, and I think I speak for a couple of others. And okay. I hope I can get through this without choking up because it's very, very deep for me. Okay. Uh, I came to TCF uh, back in 2004, and at the time my wife and I were separated. We'd been separated for about three years. Okay. It wasn't until 2009 that I got my divorce papers. Yeah. Now, uh, she says she was saved and a believer, but, you know, she claimed to know God, but by her deeds she denied him. Uh, she even said, even told me that uh, I'll take my chances with God on more than one occasion. Now, that mm. would cause you to, you know, see red lights and flashing signs and all that stuff. Because sure. how can you know God and say a question like that? Yeah. Anyway, regardless, uh, she abandoned the marriage.
0: Wow.
2: Okay. In light of what you just taught today, where do I stand? I've already heard some others, but I, I want to hear what you've got to say.
0: Yeah, as far as the idea of remarriage, uh,
2: or that, or you know, just w- what's my status right now?
0: Yeah, you know, Larry, I, I would, f- from just hearing what you're saying, is more than likely it sounds you sounds like you may have married an unbeliever, unbeknownst to you, and I don't know when you became a believer in her. That's probably immaterial. The point is that she has left you, um, and you've had a divorce. Now the issue is, for instance, let's take remarriage. Can you remarry? Uh, Jesus, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5... This is addressed, by the way, in Matthew chapter 5, Mark 10, and Matthew 19. The, the clear teaching from Scripture is that if you were to remarry, you would be committing adultery, okay? So the idea is, is you want to... Because she's still alive is the idea, and she hasn't committed um, uh, sexual immorality against you, and we don't need to pry, but that would be the principle. If she's done those things, then you would be free to remarry, OK, however, you're also I think this passage speaks to that you're in peace and you no longer have to chase her down to try to keep your end of the marriage marital agreement, as it were. Do you see what I'm saying? That's how I would apply this to yourself. And um, and so the counsel that I would give you is that the scriptures, I think, are clear with regarding remarriage is that it's you're free if the spouse dies mm-hmm. or through sexual immorality, if those two things have not occurred, I, I think you're then to reconcile to your wife. If you were to be remarried, would be the idea. Yeah, because I tried would, to I tried right. to get it back together. And, and I uh, and I, I and I know that. And I've talked yeah, because I, right. I never signed no
2: divorce papers. Right, you know, exactly. I never did she want wanted that. to.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah that, but that's it. how I would understand the scriptures. Now, maybe I'm not thinking correctly on them, but maybe somebody else can correct me. But that's how I would understand the teaching from Matthew 5, Mark 10, Matthew 19, and. 1 Corinthians here in chapter 7. So yeah, I hope that helps. Yeah, Keith.
1: I was just thinking the you know, visa application on this yeah.
0: is that we often
1: use this particular passage to try to justify remarriage, sure, even if uh, the, the question that came up and really it's much stronger as a passage to show the error of a Catholic priest could who would and embrace Anul. celibacy and call yeah. celibacy Anul. more spiritual because what this is saying is that that's the air that the Corinthians are moving towards.
0: Asceticism, and yeah. And this is
1: what the answer to Paul was to that.
0: Yeah. Well said. That's exactly right. You and, do- we don't,
1: and we don't see this passage applied to the Catholic priesthood, but it would be much more... Uh, It's much stronger than try to apply it to a remarriage situation.
0: That's exactly right. In fact, that's what we talked about last week, Keith, was asceticism is actually setting oneself up for disaster because it it just doesn't work. And that's the problem. Yeah, Jim. Let's say that you're married and you get divorced, but it's not for immorality. It's for some other reason. Okay. And then you get remarried. As I understand what you have just said, you commit adultery. But is that a once-for-all event, or do you continue to live in sin because of that adultery? Yeah, I know what you're saying. In other words, should you then dissolve that marriage? Once you're married, the principle is stay married, okay? Uh, And so it's not that every day you're waking up in that marriage committing adultery, and therefore you should divorce that person. Stay married, okay? Stay as you are. I think that's a good principle that we glean from here. But yet God has so instituted marriage that he wants to make sure that is protected so that the only way out of that covenant is by death of the spouse, which some of you, remember the old joke uh, Ruth Graham said, they asked if she ever thought about divorce, and she said, well, no, but I've thought of murder a few times, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> she wanted out, but it's that and it's infidelity because then the covenant is broken, um, so is, is that clear? Yeah. So if you're remarried, stay married. That's that's the, yeah. I Man,
1: just I I don't think you can talk about this kind of an issue yeah. without bringing up the concept of a moral dilemma. Sure. Because we live in a sinful world and we live with the fruit of a sinful world, my sin, your sin, we all sin. Sure. And there's the consequences that we live because of it. And when it says if no one sins, the you, you know, we don't know of a sinless person. Yeah, and the fact that if you apply that same concept to the way Jesus did, to not just actions but to thoughts, yeah. there's nobody that that uh, survives the test. Yeah. So when we look at that kind of a concept, there's you know we often have bad choices. We can be shot or hung. We can burn <laughs> in sin, right. or we can. And I don't mm-hmm. think it's a very that passage wasn't designed to be a ruler to measure whether we can remarry or not. And if you right. try to do that to justify it, it's the wrong way around. We yeah. just know that we're sinners and we know that God's saving us. He saved us and he continues to save us. And yeah. we call out to him for for uh, fortitude yeah. to go forward because we have a lot of bad choices that our sins and other sins have given us.
0: That's right. Well said. And the, that's why I'm appealing to other passages related to... Um, when a divorce is acceptable and when it's not and one thing that we want to be careful is on one hand we want to see the scriptures and not say well you know i can fudge a little here or there on the other hand is we don't want to be legalistic by taking something like you're saying uh, keith that's not even addressed in this passage and use it as a mallet to say that you can in fact be remarried or whatever the Addressing. So you're right. And that's why I think we want to affirm what the scriptures clearly say. Jesus is very clear because we want to affirm marriage. That's the place where it's safe to be naked again, as it were. Remember in the garden, they, they were naked and they were ashamed. Well, in the union of marriage, you can be naked once again and no longer be ashamed. And it's the only place in this world where you have that. And that covenant God takes very seriously. So, on one hand, we want to affirm that. On the other hand, we want to say, yeah, people do sin. And, in fact, that's addressed in uh, Deuteronomy 24 because of the hardness of heart. So you're right. And truth be told, the thought life of men would have us all violate the seventh commandment and, therefore, in some sense, violate the marriage covenant. However, the point is is the protection of both spouses within the confines of marriage. And so we want to just uphold, certainly, what the Scriptures are clearly teaching there. Uh, Bob. Uh, without any...
4: I don't want to discourage anybody who's already been divorced, okay? And that's not, not my point. But what I want to say is, a marriage is worth fighting for. Amen. And if you're married, whether you're the wife or the husband, fight the battle to stay that way. And you got to. It's not always going to be, uh, you know, if you have troubles and difficulties and unhappiness or whatever's going on. It's not going to stay that way. No. I don't believe for the Christian. Fight the battle, get through the hard times, get the kids raised. Okay. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> That's the hard times. <laughs> and the marriage will improve. And There's a certain sense of well-being. And, again, I'm not saying this to put any shame, any disrespect, anything on somebody who's already been divorced because what happened happened.
0: That's right.
4: And you can't change it. It is. Yep. But I'm talking to the people that are married. It's worth fighting the battle. Yeah, amen. And it's worth learning how to be a better husband. Wow. It's worth learning how to be a better wife. It's worth learning how to love and respect one another. And um, in the long run, the benefits are fantastic. Wow. Wow. Praise God. Because you end yeah. Up with,
0: yeah. You, Praise God. You end yeah, up um, with an
4: intact family. Amen. And grandkids. Yeah. And it's a great thing that God gives you. Yeah. and. I think we're we're too prone to bail out.
0: Amen. Yeah.
4: And let's just forget the bailing out, and fight the battle.
0: Right.
4: To to keep the marriage together, and to do what you have got to do. Yeah. And that's a biblical principle here. The marriage was ordained by God.
3: Right.
4: And it's worth. And again, I don't I don't I don't have any animosity or any feelings of superiority over yeah. somebody that's already been divorced. My heart goes out to you, and I understand. That's not what you wanted. That's not what you intended. Yeah. It's what happened, and you got to live with it. Right. I understand that. But I'm talking to the married people. Hang in there and don't give up. Amen.
0: Wow. That's
4: my, well that's my advice
0: well pastor. You know, Bob, I'm just going to share the words that you gave us a few weeks ago, and I really thought they were appropriate. Uh, the words were, it's better to honor your covenants than to be happy in this life. And the the point being is, let me make an analogy. From Scripture, Paul does talk about being a soldier of the Lord. And um, a soldier doesn't bail out when the fighting is difficult because of duty, honor, and country is the idea, and how much more so we, before the living God, honor our commitments. And you had made a great point that our personal happiness we're not to live necessarily. We, we may be unhappy our whole lives, right? But we want to honor our, our covenant before God. Yeah, and, and uh, I think that was those were good words you shared. It
4: was, it, was, it was endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Amen. And if being married to somebody that is making you unhappy is your hardship, then you may need to endure that. Yeah. And I think that principle's been lost. Yeah. Because we always think, well, there's a way out. I'll just get out of this. I'll yep. be done. And, in
0: fact, this passage has been used as loopholes, um, and passages like this have been abused for that reason. So so I,
4: I would fight the battle, stay there, love. Yeah. You know, you, everything is said in the passage. You, how do you know that you, as let's say you're the husband and your wife is rebellious and doesn't want to serve God and whatever, how do you know that you, being a loving, kind, godly man, yeah won't have the influence on her that will lead her to salvation. It would be certainly worth the effort, as far as I can understand it.
0: And that's exactly what Paul is saying.
4: Exactly. And so, therefore, don't give up and don't bail out and don't run away. Do what you can. Amen. And God can change people. God can change you. Yeah. (laughs) Okay? God can take you and make you into a decent husband. I hope he did that for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great. You, you can all ask Diane about yeah, that once. That's right. <laughs> we got Carla up here. Oh, I'm sorry, Carla. We got one more, I guess. Hey, Bill.
1: Uh, in First uh, Corinthians seven, where it says, uh, you know, uh, verse eight, I say, therefore, under the unmarried and widows. And you brought out that the Greek for unmarried. Means formerly married men.
0: Yeah, the widowers. Yep. Okay, then wouldn't that scripture uh, be a good case to say that Paul was married? Let me just think about that because you're saying, well, he was unmarried because he says in verse. But you're saying formerly married, had been married. I see what you're saying. I don't know. I would have to. Um, I would have to look into that. I don't know if we can infer that or not. Because I, I don't know why it would necessarily follow. He's just dealing with those who were formerly married. But it doesn't necessarily follow then that he was at one time formally married. He in the f- previous verse is just saying, I wish that all could be as I am, that is unmarried. But then he just switches in verse, what is that, verse 8 through 9 to refer to those he knows that are currently Unmarried because they were their spouse had died, but they don't necessarily have his gift that is of celibacy. So I don't I don't think we can infer that from that passage, as far as I can tell. So, but it's a it's a good thought. Yeah. Oh Carla.
1: Yeah, I just wondered if you could clarify which passages uh, do one one can stand on that it's okay to leave for uh, infidelity if this one. You're yeah. saying isn't one? What other ones are there out there that?
0: Yeah, that let's um, in fact that? turn, uh, if you will, to Matthew chapter five, and I'll have to look through here just to make sure I get the right specific verses. It's uh, Matthew 5:31. This is one section where, again, we're in the um, Sermon on the Mount here, and starting in Matthew 5:31, Jesus says. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Of course, that's from Deuteronomy 24.1. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, now here comes the exception clause, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so there would be one concept where we would see, certainly that in the, if, if your spouse is unfaithful, that would be an exception clause. Okay, another one is we actually did read it in first corinthians seven thirty nine and um, in seven thirty nine I think we see that the principle is until you die and we also see that principle in romans seven two Let me just turn to first corinthians seven thirty nine in thirty nine it says a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, okay, so um, the normal how, how are you bound in your marriage covenant? Well, until the other one's dead. <laughs> but if you kill them, then you're guilty of murder too, so you're, you're stuck. <laughs> okay, but then, then, of course, the exception clause would hold is that if they break the covenant, then the covenant has been broken. That is if they're unfaithful in that sense, and that in case of infidelity. So those are the two instances where marriage is legitimately um, divorceable and you're not yourself committing adultery. So I hope that helps. And also, Mark 10, um, I, I wish I had this. I think it's starting right in 10.1, I think, if I recall correctly. But that is basically a reiteration of what Jesus... It's the same thing Jesus is talking about in Matthew 19. He may use a few different terms, um, but, yeah, it's the same principles. Yeah, Karen. Oh, I'm sorry, who's got the... Oh, I'm sorry, we're back there. Gotcha.
3: Whenever we've had this kind of a discussion or Bible study... There's always the woman or women in the group who have husbands who are unbelievers okay. or even believers who are abusing them. Okay. And we are in no way saying that a woman is required to live under threat
0: yeah, of that's physical
3: right. abuse or death.
0: That's right. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. We are not saying that if you're being abused that you have to stay under that abuse. That is not what's being stated. And that's something that is, is—it's I think, given as a granted that the person isn't being abused. It's not necessarily dealt with, but I think that that would definitely fall under the category of the moral dilemma where it's better to leave and live than to um, be killed off per, you know, or whatever. So, yeah, we're not saying that if you're being abused and it's genuine abuse, that, yeah, you have to sit under that. Yeah, thank you.
2: Um, so, if the ex
1: husband didn't die but he remarried, that also is a freedom then for the other see, one? Or do they have to wait till he dies?
0: Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. Okay, so let me just. Okay, so the ex husband, they get a divorce, and then the ex husband dies. No, then, yeah. No, the right? ex husband
1: remarries.
0: Oh, the, the ex husband ex-husband remarries. remarries.
1: He doesn't die, he marries.
0: Oh, he marries. Yeah. Well, this is my understanding is that that would be this is how I would understand that is there would be sexual infidelity then between the two married previously married couples, and I would understand then that the person would be free to remarry because obviously but the point is is if someone leaves and they're being celibate and let's say you're divorced, the idea is to reconcile the marriage it's always that 's the the idea, but in that instance there' obviously is infidelity. And that person would be free to remarry. Yeah, That's how I would understand the passage, yeah.
2: Okay, another question for you. Oh,
0: boy. Um, <laughs> I, knew, I knew this was going to be a rough one here on, uh, okay. on marriage.
2: <laughs> you talked about uh, the teaching here and the implications and applications here that address certain issues and others that don't. Is it possible when we look through the whole counsel of God that we can find by principle, precept, and uh, statute, answers to those questions in that specific passage in other places in scripture
0: I'm, I'm sorry as far as what scenario are you thinking of particular well since he uh, doesn't
2: address things there other places that scripture may address a particular subject you know i mean when you oh, well, we look at the whole council.
0: i see what you're saying regarding
2: remarriage yeah or yeah. you know anything else but well, did, i mean because it just doesn't deal with it right here but you know, in other places, you know, like you pointed out uh, that other passage about I think it was in uh, what was that First Corinthians or no, it was another passage. No, uh, Matthew five. Yeah, Matthew where it 5 We're talking about. One, yeah. So he may not address it there, but when you look at the whole council, then
0: yeah, can, exactly. That's exactly right. Principal right.
2: precept and uh, yep. statute, you can find it there when it's not specific. Exactly.
0: Right? So in other words, this passage isn't dealing with remarriage per se, or and when it's acceptable for remarriage. But these other passages do. And again, if your spouse is dead or they've cheated, um, those are the exceptions. Then you would be free to remarry, and it'd have to be within the in the Lord. If you're a believer, that's how we would understand the totality of Scripture with Matthew five and um, Mark ten and Matthew nineteen and those
3: passages. Yeah, yeah. Paul, just a few comments and question on um like with the let them separate part where if, if the unbelieving spouse desires to leave yeah it says let them separate but it's a uh, the greek it's the middle it's let them separate themselves sure you know it's something that they're doing themselves they can leave they can okay they can get their divorce but it's yeah it's not something that you necessarily need to participate in if that unbelieving oh i see spouse what you're leaves. saying yeah good point um but it, so it's something that, it's it's their action. It says let them do it. It's in, yeah. it's actually in the imperative yeah. um, in the Greek. But Right, so um, it's a
0: command, right. But, yeah, right, you're not partaking in it. They're the ones who are they're
3: they're, doing they're it. They're doing it. They're leaving. Right. It's not your fault. Exactly. And, and, and then I mean, one, yeah. one question that, um, for how do you know if you'll save your husband and vice versa yeah. at the end, do you think that's, and, is it possible that that's just a summary statement of the whole paragraph where he spoke earlier about that sanctification that you know you're sanctifying your husband, and
0: yeah, the only thing that would mitigate against that I would say is the four typically, when you have a four it's showing results that's immediately related to what had preceded, and so that would seem to indicate um logical inference of you know so in other words the idea is you show peace to all people even though they're undeserving you stay within the confines of marriage for you don't know if you may save your that would make more sense because it could be the
3: whole yeah it could be the whole paragraph exception summary of paragraph
0: right the only problem with that is that four that is inferential logic and it's used it really can't tie back that far I wouldn't say it would have to apply or refer back to the preceding verses otherwise it wouldn't make any sense and I think that that would be prohibitive against that view.
3: Okay. Yeah. That would be my opinion. And then one yeah. other um one other comment, I guess, the um earlier in verse twelve where it's in they consent to live. You know, if they consent to live with you. Yeah. It's yeah. It, it's like uh, Greek words soon you doke, which is they're pleased Please, to live with yeah. you. It's 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 a little stronger than they just want to live with you.
0: Sure. Yeah, they actually the desire to do so. Yeah, yeah. yeah
3: so it's a, there, there's a harmony there, I guess. Yeah, is maintained if. And, and that's true. That's oh yeah,
0: sure. Right. That's a good point. That's a good point to make. Yeah. Yep. One thing with that. Um, let me just scroll up one more time. Oh, we're past time. One thing. Just recall the issue is, thus far in Corinthians, Paul has been saying you have to keep your end of the bargain. You can't abstain from sexual relations with your partner. The last verses, verses 15 and 16, what Paul is saying is, no longer are those words binding upon you if your unbelieving spouse leaves. You don't have to try to chase them down, so you don't remain abstinent. Again, because the binding there doesn't have to do with being bound to marriage, but rather being bound to the word that Paul had spoken thus far. So, um, I, and I'm not saying that to you per se, but you just brought that up in my mind again. So, yeah, that's the issue. If we get that right, I think we understand that passage. So, well said. Great questions. Um, I'm glad i'm off the hot seat now on marriage, but I think we're good We come back to more of this uh, the next time we're together in first corinthians. So blessings. We'll see you upstairs for acts